we have been uh, going through the last uh, 24 hours of Jesus' life as we uh, approach Easter. Easter's uh, next week, a Resurrection Sunday. And today we're going to be looking at uh, the crucifixion of Christ. We are looking at the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Matthew was one of, the, uh, one of Jesus' disciples, and he wrote down his account in what is called the Gospel of Matthew, uh, found in our Bible, and we've been reading his account of uh, his experience with, with Jesus. Now, Jesus taught us, if you can click on, uh, just advance one slide, then this will work. There we go. Um, Jesus taught us this. He said, my command is this, love each other as I have loved you. And then he said, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. Uh, the act of laying down your life for another person uh, is a very loving act. I mean, there's nothing more precious to you and me than our, than our own life. Uh, to think of actually laying it down for uh, a friend or a family member, I mean, really speaks volumes of your love for uh, a family member. Uh, and, uh, and, and then hopefully all we are willing to do that for those we love and for, for our family members. But even deeper, we see Jesus giving up his life, uh, not just for his friends, but the book of Romans uh, says this, and maybe it's not working, if you can just advance this slide there for me, said this, uh, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. So we're not like friends of God, we were not family, we, that, we, that we were, you know, not loving Jesus and loving people the way we should. We, we didn't have everything together, we were powerless, and yet Christ dies for us. And then it says, very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die, but God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That when we are at our lowest, when we are at our worst, when we are in the darkest period of, of our life, there is love coming from God towards you. And if God loves you at the darkest moment in your life, then, then he, he just loves you all the time. And you must understand that the cross shouts the fact that God loves you beyond any doubt. I mean, as you sit there, you are loved. It doesn't matter what your week has looked like. It doesn't matter what you're going through. It doesn't matter what you're struggling with. It doesn't matter if you feel far from God or close to God. God loves you. And that's what the cross uh, tells us and that the cross reveals, and we're going to look at the cross today. The, the very thing that held uh, Jesus there was, was the cross. And so we pick it up in verse 26, where we left off. We had saw that the Jews took uh, Jesus to, to Pilate because the Jews could not kill anybody. They didn't have the right to execute anybody. Only the Romans had that power in those days, so they had to find a reason to give to Pilate in order to have Jesus executed. So the charge they brought was, uh, this Jesus is claiming to be king of the Jews. Therefore, he's a threat to Caesar. And Pilate, your job is to keep rule. Your job is to keep any threat to Caesar under control. So your duty is to crucify Jesus. Now, Pilate didn't want to. Uh, Pilate saw that, that th these people were, were trying to kill Jesus out of selfish motives, but he was kind of caught because he had to rule Rome, and, and this guy was claiming to be a king, supposedly so. He orders him to be crucified, and that's where we pick it up. That Pilate had Jesus flogged. If you can go back, sorry. Yeah. 
Yeah, now, now it's working, so I got it. Uh, Pilate had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Now, flogging was just a normal part of crucifixion. Back then, if you were to be crucified, you'd go through uh, a Roman flogging, which involved a, a whip like this one with various leather strands, which when laid across the back would, would split the skin open, and they would attach bits of lead or rock or glass or bone or anything they could attach to the whip so that it was laid across the back. It would not only split open the skin, but it would rip and tear and bruise, and I mean, just, just horrible. In fact, uh, Josephus, the historian, talks about people when they were uh, being flogged by the Romans that they would often be whipped right to the bone. Uh, so bone would be exposed. I mean, someone's back would look like, like hamburger. And the Jews, they had rules about flogging that they could only flog uh, 40 lashes. Uh, the Romans had no such thing. They basically had a centurion there, and they would take the prisoner, they'd tie him to a post, strip off their clothes, and basically begin whipping the person until the centurion said, it looks like he's about to die, let's stop, because we still got to crucify him. And Jesus goes through this. And we know that any moment, Jesus could have called down 72,000 angels, like he said. At any moment, he could have stopped. At any moment, he could have revealed his glory, but, but he doesn't. He willingly allows himself to be tied to a post and flogged in the most brutal way because he loves us. Because this is why he came, to pay the price that we deserve so that we might be free. That he took on our sins so that we might be free. That Jesus goes through this for, for our freedom. And then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium. That would be uh, Pilate's palace. And gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. Then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him, took the staff, and struck him on the head again and again. And after they mocked him, they took off the robe and put on uh, his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to crucify him. And so here we see the soldiers mocking Jesus. This was a common part of crucifixion, that they would mock the person. And this is no accident. Uh, the way they are mocking Jesus, the scarlet robe, the crown of thorns, the staff in the right hand, the, the saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Because his charge was to be King of the Jews, they were, they were mocking him as a king. Caesar, the ruler of the day, wore a robe, wore an ivory crown, had a, a scepter in his hand. They would say, hail Caesar. And so they dressed Jesus up, kind of a mockery of Caesar. So you're a king, and they mock him as they dress him up. And this is all part of what Jesus went through. And you imagine how hard that would have been for Jesus. I mean, you know how hard it is when someone mocks you? Someone starts teasing you and saying things that are, you know, just ticking you off. And you have bad words forming in the back of your head. And you're just like, I wish I wasn't a Christian right now because I'd pop you in or, or whatever. I mean, you know how hard it is, right? But here is Jesus. I mean, at any moment, he, again, he could have revealed his glory. At any moment, he could have said, look, this is who I really am. But he doesn't. He goes through this for our, for our sake as they mock him. And it says, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry 
the cross. And uh, this guy named Simon was from Cyrene, which is kind of northern Africa. He may have been uh, a native to northern Africa. He may, uh, most people think he was actually a Jew because there's a big Jewish population in, in northern Africa that he came up for the Passover festival, but we don't really know. But he's forced to carry Jesus' cross because Jesus was so weak from being flogged that as they carried, they wouldn't have carried the whole cross, just, just the top cross beam. I mean, it would have been so heavy that, that he just couldn't do it. And perhaps he fell on the ground numerous times, and, and the soldiers just grab some random person out of the crowd and say, you carry it for Jesus. And, 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 and tradition tells us that, that Cyrene was so, uh, Simon was so impacted by this that, that he, be, he himself becomes, becomes a Christian. But he's forced to carry the cross. And this is just one of the many, many things that, that just goes to show that this is not a made-up story. Uh, that if someone was trying to make up this story, they would not have had Jesus not being able to carry the cross. Because, I mean, Jesus taught that we're to take up our cross and we're to follow him. And here we have Jesus not even able to carry his own cross. Now, of course, Jesus was talking about just being willing to, to, to die for the kingdom. But, but I mean, this, this just points to the authenticity of the story. That this really happened. That really Jesus did die for you, which means you really can be forgiven. And you really can live in freedom. And you really can be redeemed. And you really are loved deeply. And then they came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And uh, if you ever go to Jerusalem, sometimes they point to this mountain. It kind of looks like a skull that they would say, this is where Jesus is crucified, though there's other sites that they say he might have been crucified. But it was probably on a hilltop like this. They usually did it on one of the main roads going into the city so that everybody would see because Again, they crucified people to say, don't rebel against Rome. So it was a very visual thing. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink, mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. And again, this was not an act of mercy. But again, this is an act of mocking Jesus. Just as Caesar is dressed with the staff and the robe and the crown, so too Caesar, they drink wine. So here you go, king, have some wine. And when they crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots because they knew he was going to die. He's not going to need his clothes anymore. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Now, he was crucified, and, and, and uh, crucifixion was not invented by the Romans. I mean, it was used throughout history. I mean, Alexander the Great crucified uh, thousands of people. The Jewish people themselves would, uh, before the Romans came in, crucified people. In fact, there was one civil war within the Jews uh, before the Romans took over, and one group crucified uh, 800 Pharisees. Crucified them all in front of their families, and while they're hanging on the cross, the Jews took and would, and they killed all their wives and kids in front of them as they hung on. I mean, just horrible stuff was going on, but, but it was what just kind of went on in those days. The Romans uh, perfected crucifixion. Uh, they crucified tens of thousands of people. In fact, at one point, they crucified 6,000 people all at once, leading uh, the road into the city of Rome, crucified 6,000 rebels to make a point that you don't mess with Rome. And so they had perfected crucifixion. And uh, in fact, in one of the ancient Roman soldier's manual that we have found, it says this, and this is the soldier's manual for the Romans. Whenever we crucify the condemned, uh, the most crowded roads are chosen. 
where the most people can see and be moved by this terror. For penalties relate not so much to retribution as to their exemplary effect. In other words, we're going to make an example of anybody who messes with Rome or claims to be a king. We crucify them. And, uh, and most likely, the kind of cross that Jesus was crucified on was, was more of a T kind of cross. Like these was the most common kind of cross. Though if you put the little sign on the top, it would, might make it look more like the cross, the Latin cross that we know of. Uh, they wouldn't have been crucified that high. Most of the trees don't grow very high there. Uh, they would have been very low to the ground, and there's countless uh, ancient reports of people being on the crosses and dogs and jackals and animals coming up and just being eating the people on the cross, so they were usually very low. Birds would come around and pluck out people's eyes. I mean, just horrible. Uh, they would crucify people naked. They were just exposed. It was such a, a humiliating thing, and Jesus went through this. And at any moment, he could have stopped. At any moment, he could have got off. At any moment, he said, you know, screw this. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start a new world because I'm not going through this. But, but he does this because of his love. That if you ever doubt that God loves you, you just got to look at the cross. I mean, you might be going through something right now or your family, and you're like, God, I don't know if you love me because why would I be going through this if you, if you love me? I mean, sometimes those things are complicated. We don't, they don't always make sense. But when things don't make sense, we just got to look at the cross and say, I'm so loved. There's nobody who would do that for you. But Jesus, Jesus did. Uh, they have actually found uh, a bone of a crucified person. And this bone dates to right around the time of Jesus. This person was crucified under Pontius Pilate. His name was found on his bone box, uh, Johannan. And, uh, and it was interesting, this person was crucified with his legs sideways, and so they think that most people are actually crucified, not the typical way from the front that we see in a lot of pictures, but through the ankle uh, sideways, and you can just imagine this big six-inch nail being pounded through your ankle bones and, and through your wrist, I mean, just how excruciating uh, that would be. In fact, it's such a horrible thing that they didn't even use the word. They wouldn't even speak the word. I mean, it'd be like a swear word today. We're like, well, it's not appropriate. It was just such a terrible uh, terrible uh, thing. Uh, the early church, because it was such a horrible thing, didn't actually use the cross as their symbol. I mean, we do today. Uh, as, I mean, about fourth century became more popular, but they actually used the fish, uh, mostly because the Greek word fish up there is an acrostic for Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior. And uh, when the church was being persecuted, it was illegal to be a Christian. If they wanted to know if another person was a Christian, sometimes they would just kind of draw that sign in the sand. And if the other person did, then they would, oh, you're, you're a fellow Christian. It was actually the symbol of early uh, Christianity. Uh, because today, I mean, for them, it would be like us having like an electric chair around our, in our neck as a symbol or something. Because it was just such a reality to them uh, back then. But now for us, it's become the symbol of our salvation, the symbol of our freedom, and the symbol of, of how much Jesus loves us. And with that, we're going to uh, just uh, watch a short video here. It's a video of a trauma surgeon talking a little bit about what Jesus would have uh, went through. Yeah, I, I believe that Christ's suffering uh, and the demonstration of the kind of, um, of physiologic stress that his human body was under uh, is manifested in the Garden of Gethsemane where it's described that he was sweating blood. And there are there is a well-documented uh, medical condition in which patients who are under tremendous amount of uh, 
emotional stress and physiological stress can in fact uh, sweat blood because little blood vessels within the glands burst and, the, and then the blood is expressed. The, the, the scourge involved the use of a, a short whip with pieces of uh, typically metal, sometimes bone, sometimes pieces of porcelain wrapped in these leather straps, which is then utilized to, to come across uh, typically the back, the shoulders, the legs of the victim. Uh, and uh, the first few passes across a particular body part would tear through the skin, the fat, uh, but eventually, once the outer layers were, were uh, torn away, it would start getting in the muscle and the tendon. And of course, along the way, you're ripping through all the blood vessels that supply all those tissues. And so you're losing blood the whole time. The plant that was described um, uh, actually had a very long thorn, um, not the little thorns that we would think from a rose bush. These were thorns that were uh, typically an inch and a half to two inches in length. The scalp is one of the most vascular portions of our body. It's got a huge blood supply up there. So then having those thorns shoved down into the, you know, down onto the bony plate would have gone through all the scalp which in and of itself would have created a huge amount of blood loss. Uh, I've seen people actually bleed to death from just a scalp injury. So uh, this is not a small injury to have, uh, who knows, dozens uh, of these things shoved into your scalp. And so that would have caused more blood loss. Typically when a victim has to uh, uh, carry the cross, what has been described uh, in the literature, in, in actual Roman literature, is they, they describe, the, they, they carry the crossbar. Uh, and the crossbar is estimated alone, was estimated to weigh about 110 pounds. And of course, if your arms are stuck out here, wrapped up on the cross, crossbar, and you fall down, you need help getting up. You, you, you just can't get up on your own because there's no possible way without your arms to get up. So he would have needed help getting up. If he, fall, if he fell over, there's a good chance that he could have hit his chest, which, which then could account for the possibility of a cardiac injury. Anatomically, we consider the wrists as part of the hand. And so uh, with the placement of the nails between the radius and the ulna at that position, it, it still fits, fits the definition of being in the hand and it's in a position in which the nail won't rip out, which you have to have, you have, to have a solid point of fixation. Uh, another interesting point about the placement of that is the median nerve goes right straight through that particular uh, 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 portion of the wrist. And so there would have been uh, either destruction of the nerve or, or impingement of the nerve that would have created tremendous amount of pain that every time you try to take a breath, you'd be, it'd be agonizing. You'd be pushing down on spike feet which of course hurt, and then you'd be hanging on spiked arms. And so you alternate from excruciating pain to excruciating pain every time you take a breath. So, so even if he survives the actual crucifixion, he would have had to survive what I believe to be a, a, a lethal injury from the spear to, to find out whether he was alive or not. What's described is the loss of water and blood and that would entail either the, the uh, uh, either a pleural effusion or pericardial effusion, and the blood would have come from either pulmonary artery, pulmonary vein, the aorta or vena cava, or the heart itself.
None of those injuries, unless you're treated immediately by a trauma surgeon like myself, with all the advanced equipment that we have would be survivable after even a few minutes. Christ as the Son of God could have survived anything. He chose to manifest himself as a human at that point in time and allowed himself to die. And, and being human at that point in time, he could not have survived this particular series of traumas. It's not possible. Um, Christ as God could have survived anything they threw at him. And, but he chose to be Christ, the human, at that point in time to die for our sins. And that given that, that self-limitation of remaining to be human, he died. He did not survive the event. I, uh, I'm profoundly impacted by it because I realized that the price that he paid was something I'm not, I would be never be willing to do for probably anybody. It's very difficult for me to even sing songs about the cross, even in worship. Because I truly do understand what he paid, the price that he paid. Matthew's story continues. Uh, two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and uh, one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants, uh, wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults at him. Uh, again, they're, they're saying, hey, just, just come down to that cross, and, and we'll believe in you. And he could have. Totally could have. And I picture myself there. I'm just like, I'm coming down right now because... <laughs> But he doesn't. I mean, what again held Jesus there? It was his love for you. I mean, you just ever want to know how much God loves you? You just look at what Jesus went through on the cross. And that's why sometimes, even though this is very hard to kind of go through the story every time or at near uh, Good Friday, but it's just good to remember that this is to the extent of his love for, for us. And then from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama shabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And here, Jesus, uh, this is actually taken from the first line of Psalm 22. Uh, it's the exact same, uh, same line. And some people think that Jesus here is, is quoting the psalm as he's hanging on the cross, because the psalm is about a suffering victim who, in the end, uh, is victorious and, and is vindicated and, and is freed. 
Uh, but most think that this was more than Jesus just quoting a psalm, that he was actually experiencing this. That, that Jesus on the cross was f- feeling and experiencing uh, uh, being forsaken by God. Now, we need to remember that Jesus uh, is fully God and fully man. So Jesus, as fully God, could never be forsaken by the Father because he, he is God. The Father is God. Jesus is God. There could never be any division or forsakenness when it comes to God, the Son, but as Jesus as a human being. Uh, undoubtedly, he experienced great uh, forsakenness as the Bible says that he took upon himself the sin of the world. Again, we've, we've talked about this. Just think about how much uh, pain your own sin costs you. Uh, when you sin, you mess up in your marriage or you mess up in a relationship, just how, how painful that is. Just imagine adding up all your mistakes and all your sin for your whole life and just having that dumped on you in one moment, that darkness and blackness might just cause you to feel like forsaken by God. But Jesus didn't just take my sin and didn't just take your sin, but he took every of the grossest, most disgusting sin that ever happened on this planet. He took upon himself the sin of the world. And I think that was probably even more painful than the physical pain. Uh, Because emotional pain can be huge. In, In that moment, as the Bible says, that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that undoubtedly this is where that cry comes out, a feeling forsaken by God in in that moment as he takes on our sin. And when some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah, because Eli, Eli, sounds like Elijah. And in Jewish tradition, they had this, this thinking that, that if you were in pain, that Elijah would come and rescue you sometimes. So they're like, well, let's see if he comes. And immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine ving- vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Some think this was out of mercy. Some think this was an act of mockery. We just don't know. Uh, The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him as they're watching this very public event. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And the other gospel said, he he, he cries out, it is finished. That that I've paid the the price for sin, that that your sin's been paid for. And if you're walking with Jesus and, and you're in relationship with Jesus, Man, you're forgiven. There, there's no more condemnation. You're a part of the kingdom. You're a child of God. It is finished. Not that Jesus said, well, in about 10 years, I've got to come back because, you know, these people will sin again. He paid for all sin at that time on the cross. And then a very strange text comes into the picture here. It says, at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. And in uh, the temple, there was this gigantic curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And in Jewish thinking, the most holy place is where, was where the presence of God was. Uh, no one could go in there except for just a high priest once a year could go in there, and that's it. And he was always freaked out because he, he might die because they're going to the presence of God. Jesus on the cross, when he dies, this temple curtain was torn in two. In other words... Uh, this limitation between us and God that we need priests to go through or we need a mediator to go through, that there's no more, that there's basically the open house. C- come on in, you're welcome now into the very presence of God. In fact, the book of Hebrews picks up this theme and says this, therefore, brothers, that, that, that's anyone who believes in Jesus. If you love Jesus, this, this is you. It says this, 
since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, uh, that we can confidently go in to the throne room. Uh, Hebrews said, let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive his mercy, and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. I mean, the, to be a Christian, there's none of this, oh God, I'm too unworthy to come into your presence, and, and I, I'm really scared. No, boldly, confidently, you go into the throne, say, hey dad, and we don't go in boldly because I'm so good, or you're so good, we go in because Jesus is so good. And he's paid the price, and he's, he's made the way that we can boldly come into prayer, into his presence, just like a little kid and his dad. That's what it's about because of Jesus. And then it says this. We can do that by the blood of Jesus. Not because you're more righteous than the person sitting next to you. Not because you're holier than thou and you pray more and read your Bible more. And it's not about that. It's about Jesus, by the way. And then it says this, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water that in Jesus your guilt is washed away, the ugliness is washed away, the stains are washed away. And, and the hardest thing about Christianity is not always accepting that it's just living that walking in this reality that you you have a beautiful access to God and if you're here and you're feeling distant from God uh, you, you, you just like think well maybe there's a God out there I mean Jesus paid a way that you can have a relationship with God you can boldly go into his throne and experience God in a very deep way all because of Jesus now weird text here this is only found in Matthew. None of the other Gospels speak about it. There's no other, any other historical accounts of this happening. It's just this one little weird text, and that's all we got to work with. And, and it says this. So the curtain was torn from top to bottom, and then it says the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And then it says the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection, and so... It's kind of weird because they were raised to life, and then it says after the resurrection they, they came out. But, but they came out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and went into the holy city and appeared to many people. And so uh, Jesus on the cross, he dies, the rocks, there's all this stuff going on, the tombs break open. And then after his resurrection, there's all these dead people walking around. Now, what's the deal with this? Uh, well, there's different opinions on this because it's a mysterious text. There's going to be different opinions. Some people uh, think this is literal. That, uh, that, that when Jesus died on the cross, there was actually these, this earthquake and things breaking open, and, and there were actually these people who had died that were walking around after the resurrection as a testimony to the resurrection. Others think this is more a, a apocryphal kind of language, and the Bible uses apocryphal language whenever there's, whenever there's something big and traumatic happening. We use the word earth-shattering, right? That was an earth-shattering event didn't really shatter the earth, but we use that kind of language to describe big things. And we see this in various places in the Bible. For instance, like at the judgment of Babylon, it says, for the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be dark at its rising. The moon will be not shed its light. And there's other texts talking about, you know, the sky being rolled away like a scroll, the stars falling. This is all apocalyptic. It's not literal. It's apocalyptic. And so people will say that this is apocalyptic in terms of that there's nothing more earth-shattering than Jesus dying on the cross 
and then this, the, the earth shook, the rocks split, the tombs broke open, these people raised it, but we don't know. It might have happened. Maybe it didn't happen. Uh, we will find out, I guess, one day. But it's a very mysterious text only, only found here. And then, uh, then he's buried. Buried. Many women were there watching from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee to care for his needs. Jesus didn't just have his 12 disciples, but he had lots of people following him, including, including women. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James, and Joseph and the mother of Zebedee's sons. That's uh, James and John. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. And we learn in the other Gospels, he was actually a religious leader, part of the Sanhedrin, the same guys who crucified Jesus and one of them dead. There are actually some good guys who love Jesus. And uh, Joseph of Arimathea was one of them. Uh, going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. And then the next day, one, uh, the one after preparation day, that was for the Passover, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver said, after three days, I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the term secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting guard. And I'm sure these Pharisees and religious leaders were saying, this is finally done. The tomb is sealed, and the nails in the coffin. The story is over. All this trouble we've been having with him pointing out our hypocrisy and pride, and it's all done. It's finished. Whew. Glad that's over. But it's not over, because we know the rest of the story, and we're going to talk about it next week, because on Sunday morning, Jesus uh, rises uh, from the dead, and, and he appears to many people, to 500 people, to his disciples, and he begins transforming lives, and he's still transforming lives today. But Jesus loves you. That's what you got to remember when it comes to the cross, that he loves you dearly. That each of you right now are, are so absolutely loved by God that if you could just get a glimpse of how much he loves you, we would probably just all melt and, and, and probably just have a heart attack. I mean, you're, you're so loved by God. And if you ever begin to doubt, just, just think about the cross because he did that for you. But you know that the cross becomes an example, and we'll just finish with this, for how we're to love other people. I mean, we're so excited that Jesus loves me that much, but it becomes an example of how we are to love other people. Jesus said, this is my commandment. Love each other in the same way I have loved you. First John 3, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. And even in marriage, husbands, and we can say wives here because we're supposed to love each other the same. Love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that we are to love each other. This, I, I mean, you just think about what Jesus went through. I mean, there's nothing worse than that, harder than that, more difficult than that. And Jesus says, that's how I want you to love each other. 
I want your marriages to be filled with such sacrificial love that it's almost cross-like, just how much you love each other and just oozing of love. And, and that this place here would be filled with this incredible love, sacrificial love, that we would go out of our way to love each other, that people who are not a part of this church and part of this community and have different beliefs, that we'd love on them because this is what we're called to do. It's to love people. So don't just end with me and Jesus. Because that's fun, that's exciting, that's great, and that's good, and, and we're to love that but that's not where love ends. Uh, to love God and love people biblically can't be separated. We must take the concept of how much he loves us. Oh, we let that change us and transform us, but don't leave it there. Let that flow out in your marriages, in your relationships, and may we live that out. Let's stand as we close. If uh, any of you need uh, prayer uh, for any reason, um, Curtis and Terry, can you be up here? Yeah, be happy to pray. And uh, Crystal as well, can you be up here and pray? If you need prayer, please come up. If they're uh, busy praying with somebody, then uh, you can just have a seat here and wait till they're done. They'd be happy to, to pray with you. Let's close. Uh, God, we thank you uh, for your love for us. God, may we feel that love. May we sense that love. May we live in that love. Uh, God, may any doubt that you love us in this room be, be just axed off. That as Satan whispers in this year that you're not good, that we're not good enough, that we don't deserve it, that that may that just, be, just be gone into the reality that you love us because you died for us, that you took our sin. And we thank you for the result of the cross, that we are free, that we are clean, that, that our guilt is washed away, that we have new life and we have life to the full. God, help us to live in that victory. Help us to live in the, in the way out and the resurrection of the cross. And God, we pray for your glory and grace on us this week. I pray you'd help us to love you and to love people. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.